Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. We wanted to take a moment to thank you for your continued support over the years. It's hard to believe that we've been having weekly in-depth discussions about movies since 2011. That's right, 12 years and counting. Producing this show is a labor of love for us, but it does require a lot of time and effort each week. If you enjoy our podcast and would love to help keep it going, there are some easy ways you can show your support. One is by using our Originals page to shop for the original source material that movies we've discussed were based on. That's right. In season one alone, we covered 13 films adapted from books or plays, from Charlie Kaufman's adaptation to David Fincher adaptations like Fight Club. In season two, we covered even more, like Powell and Pressburger's The Red Shoes and The African Queen from our series about legendary cinematographer Jack Cardiff. We can't forget about the four Jason Bourne movies we talked about. Love those movies. Well, the original trilogy, at least. <laughs> for our Richard D. Zanuck series, we did Jaws, Rush, Big Fish, and more. And for our horror series, we talked about John Carpenter's The Thing, which was adapted from Who Goes There? We did our first great car chase series with movies like Bullet, The French Connection, and Drive. And for the holidays, we did Preston Sturgis's Christmas in July. We had a great John Huston series with adaptations like The Maltese Falcon and The Treasure of the Sierra Madre. And for our baseball series, Moneyball with Brad Pitt. Have I told you lately how much I love that movie? Uh, yeah, I think you have. Plus, our Magician series and Heist film series had adaptations as well. Tons of page-to-screen gems. Listeners can find the details and links to the original material at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every book, play, or movie you buy through our links helps support the show, and it's no extra cost to you. So dive in and get your next read today. Thenextreel.com slash originals has all the films adapted from other sources that not only we have covered, but all of the shows on the Next Real family of podcasts. Check it out and get reading. Support the show and build your reading list. It's a win-win. Head to thenextreel.com slash originals. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. 
in just a matter of seconds, you're going to hear a classic episode of this show from back in the day when we called ourselves Movies We Like. It took us a while to settle into the show's format, so you'll notice some differences as you listen to these episodes. For instance, it takes us a bit of time to actually get into the conversation about the movie. Things like that. But we're still proud of the conversations about the movies themselves, and we think they're worth keeping in the library. So enjoy these episodes from our back catalog. And you can become part of our Discord community, learn more about the show, and find out how you can become a supporting member at thenextreel.com. So thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to The Next Reel. We appreciate your time and attention, and we hope you enjoy the show. Oh, I kind of figured you started already. See, I never know. Here no, I, I hadn't. am thinking that we're talking, and we're not even talking. We're not talking. It's all fake talking. Now we're talking. And now we're talking. Yeah, because I because I, I wanted to tell you. Fake. No, it wasn't. It was totally. It was good. It was good talk. That was a good talk. Okay. But now it's a now it's documented talky. Mm. Uh, I was watching the trailer for the day. Have you? So you were saying you haven't seen the trailer for the day? Is what you're telling me about? I have not. Yeah, it's it's funny. It's like a it's from what I gather from just and the trailer. No one of the hobbits is in it. <laughs> one of the hobbits is in it. Auspicious beginnings, then. Yes, uh, this is uh, that's kind of how I felt for like the first two seasons of Lost. Right, I know. Oh, that's a good show. One of the hobbits is in it. Uh, um, hobbits in a rock band. Yeah, sweet. He's so tall. Um, <laughs> It, the day is uh it's a it's like uh very much the theme and tone of a zombie film horror film uh without uh, it looks like any zombies just a lot of rage like mm-hmm. just the end of the world where people haven't turned they've just stripped away all pretense of the end of the world from disease and the end of the world from you know whatever and it's just people who decided you know what we should totally attack each other with axes <laughs> that's what that's that's what it seems like this movie is about um and uh so i'm i look forward to that because i'm a big fan and you know what this got me thinking about hmm. so this we started doing this show movies we like in uh november right yes which means we have yet to do an october oh so i'm, yeah, I'm pretty ex- halloween stuff coming i think up. we should do the whole month we should pick like two each of us gets two and to bring horror movies to bring that we do a whole month of horror. What do you think? I think that'd be fun. I think we should totally do that. I'm pretty excited. I'll try to I'll try to pick things that <laughs> that I think that you'd actually like. I think it's not a, just uh You better not pick the Blair Witch Project. If you pick the Blair Witch Project, I quit the show. We're saving the Blair Witch for our our first person <laughs> point of view show. <laughs> Is that what we're doing? Can Doom be in that that one uh, as well? No. Because that's that's got it, and then the, the Amazing whole, Spider-Man, but only the trailer. No. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Uh, so um, we should we should. Do you want to just kind of jump right in? I don't. First of all, where can we, we got to do where people can find us? We've had some uh, a little bit of uptake on our uh, brand new Facebook page for movies we like facebook.com slash movies we like. Uh, thank you, those of you who are already uh, posting over there. We sure appreciate your participation and catching us uh, uh, over there. You can also find us at rashpixel.tv. That's where all of the Rashpixel shows are, and um, I'm still working on on getting all the historical shows over there. But movies we like is all there, so check that out. And you can find me at uh, at Pete Wright on the Twitter and. Um, 
uh, yeah, pretty much everywhere else. But uh, uh, Facebook and Twitter are good. And uh, how about you, sir? Uh, you can find me at Soda Creek Film on Twitter and on Rash Pixel. You can find me there, and you can find me Facebook at Soda Creek Film as well. And uh, um, are we gonna? Did we decide we're gonna start? Uh, we're gonna open up the blog and start posting more. Uh, are you gonna start writing more commentary, film commentary? Uh, eventually, we're we're talking about doing that. I think we should. I'm, I'm ready. Sure. I'm kind of ready to yet, turn it on. I actually have I didn't know the, the blog was actually uh, well. Up it's and running. Yeah, it's it's just invisible. Like it's it's up there. I just haven't turned it on because I'm so I, I'm kind of a talker. <laughs> There's a lot of pressure when it comes. I got gotcha. you. Well, we're I think we're waiting for our blog to start with our with our uh, our interview, right? Oh yeah, we've got that. We 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 we, we do. Okay, secret interview coming soon. Yes, secret interview. All right. Let's do this movie. Let's just jump right in. So, you know, something that um, I should say, a, a couple someones that we neglected to mention in our last episode that I feel we should mention. Okay. All right. Um, so, the follow first up. is this Clive is... Owen, because any movie yeah. with Clive Owen automatically is just better. He's He is also on that list for me. Yeah, the best best, best friends, friends who yeah. haven't you haven't met yet. Right? Or who Doesn't he seem yet? like the the total like congenial guy? Like you just want to hang out with that guy. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm big on Clive Owen. He played one of the assassins, the professor, uh, who ironically also drives a BMW in this movie. And you didn't ever see him teaching. Well, you saw him teaching music. I mean, he was teaching like music, teaching a kid like how to play an instrument or something, right? He like playing the prof- piano. He could be a professor. So I thought it was funny that his name was the professor. He could be a professor of music, or a professor of murder. <laughs> <laughs> he could. You're right. He could have been a professor of murder. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> oh, hello, uh, professor. I like that better. Oh, it's right. <laughs> That's Doctor Owen to you. <laughs> Do you think when you go through like spy school, you can get a doctorate? In uh, oh, what's yours? Murder. Oh, mine's, mine's in uh, in in gadgetry. What's yours? Mine's in murder. Murder, cutlery, wielding. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic! I have. I want to go I, to that spy I school. I have a master's degree in swashbuckling. <laughs> swashbuckling. <laughs> that was the old pirate spy school. <laughs> I don't think anyone swashbuckles anymore. <laughs> I could be wrong. Uh, <laughs> do you, do you swashbuckle? I have an, I have, an <laughs> I have an emphasis in swagger. <laughs> oh wow! Yeah. So all anyway. right, so Clive Owen. Yeah, so the lovely Clive Owen. He's always a pleasure to have in any film. Um, the other person who I, I feel we absolutely have to mention uh, because I, you know, just it's going to tie into tonight as well. But Nick Powell was the uh, the stunt coordinator on the born identity and uh, really did a bang up job with the stunt work in that film. It was, uh, in fact, he won fight choreographer of the year for the work on that film and, uh, you know, just great fight sequences in that film all through. And, um, the last person that, um, or people that I feel that we should have mentioned, uh, the writers aside from Robert Ludlum, um, W Blake Heron, uh, worked on the script with Tony Gilroy and Tony Gilroy is definitely going to come into play in these next two because he pretty much wrote the uh, Born Supremacy and the Born Ultimatum so so we definitely going to be wanting to talk about him. All right. So those are some people we neglected last time. 
figured we should just uh, make glad, sure we yeah, I'm uh, glad you, a shout out to them. I'm glad you brought that, especially the stunt, because we did talk, uh, I think, at length about the um, about just, you know, the fight choreography is really stunning. Uh, yeah, and particularly as cars. I mean, all of that. It, yeah. Was stunning. Uh, as as relates uh, to, you know, chaos cinema. And mm. and I think that's uh, that's one of those um, things in this movie that that uh, provides a notable uh, difference between uh, identity and supremacy. Would you not say? Yes, I think that's uh, jumping into the whole idea of chaos cinema and the idea of the shaky cam, or, or I mean, really, kind of the visceral nature of Paul Greengrass's. Um, uh, cinema style and how he's really trying to, instead of have the camera back observing the action, even to an extent like it was in The Born Identity, where we're, we're still observing the action, even though it's quick cutting and we're observing it, it's still much more of that classical cinema style or maybe the... Um, mm-hmm. Why do I never remember the name of the, the other one? The, the amped up version of the classical style. Oh, the intensified uh, continuity? Intensified continuity. Thank you. Um, it's a little more of that, but it's still, you know, you're observing. It's just a lot quicker. Paul Greengrass really likes the whole idea of jumping into the action and making the viewer feel like you're right in the middle of the fight scenes or of the car chases or of running through the streets or whatever it happens to be to really make you feel like you're in the action. And it's very much a, uh, you know, I kind of, I don't like a, it, it for some reason I, it always strikes me as a documentary sensibility. Like you know, if if somebody you're doing a documentary about all of a sudden starts running off, you the cameraman have to run after them. It's going to have that very shaky right, style, right. and so it, it you know it just it feels that way to me. Did you uh, did you see uh, Theory of Flight? No, with uh, Kenneth Sir Kenneth Branagh and uh, uh, my one time girlfriend. Uh, from Fight Club, what's her name? Helena Bottom Carter. Helena Bottom Carter. Yeah, really, really, I, I really didn't. love her. Uh, you know, it's an interesting film. It's it was Paul Greengrass, uh, obviously 1998. Uh, prior to, um, uh, I don't know. I feel like uh, prior to the this stage of Greengrass's stylistic career, and it was not like this. It was not like this at all. It was uh, very loving and sweet, and. Uh, and a fascinating watch, and then Bloody Sunday comes along. His dramatization of the um, of, of the the Bloody Sunday massacre uh, in 1972, and everything changed. And from what I understand, uh, it was Tony Gilroy who saw Bloody Sunday and said, "You know what? Uh, Greengrass is the guy to replace uh, Lyman." Uh, mm-hmm. And 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 the, you know, tell me if you've heard something different. What I what I understand is that. Uh, at the end of Identity, uh, Matt Damon and Doug Lyman and, and uh, Matt Damon is on the record as saying, you know, at the end of Identity, we didn't think we were going to do any more of these Bourne movies because nobody wanted to work with the studio again. Like, we were done. Nobody had a good experience doing this. Well, I didn't hear him say that. I just heard that he said, you know, we're not going to make another one of these movies uh, I don't think it's going to happen unless something comes along and we can actually make one that's actually better than what we've already done. Right. And so here we here, then Gilroy sees Bloody Sunday and says, "This is the guy Lyman's not doing." Even though he got, I believe Lyman got a producer credit on this on on the 
supremacy. Well, that, my theory was that was probably a contractual thing. If yeah. any sequels happen to be made, he, he would gets either, a, he gets a you billing know, first right to or you know be offered the director role or an executive producer yeah. role or something like that. I'm sure it's a contractual thing. Well, the the contrast between Theory of Flight, Blood and Bloody Sunday and and on uh, is is really uh, stark. And I think uh, Born Supremacy is kind of an interesting place. Uh, in sort of characterizing that that more intensified continuity style, uh, where it really pushes the boundaries of of chaos cinema, uh, you know, as we're discussing it, because there are scenes in this movie where the increased intensity and the increased pacing of the fight scenes, some of the tech scenes, the gun scenes, the the you know, I'm taking out a clip, I'm putting in a clip, I'm disassembling a gun, I'm throwing a punch, whatever it is, you get totally lost. Uh, like mm-hmm. it's just there's there is no you you just can't track the action, and and the first view, uh, it, it's sort of okay, but as soon as you start kind of pulling it apart and really trying to keep up with where the characters' hands are, you realize that there is it's just gone. It doesn't make sense, and I'm starting to get a little nauseous. Yeah, it moves very quickly, and uh, I mean, there's an interesting article about. Um, primarily about Born Ultimatum, so we'll probably talk about it more then, but an interesting article um, by David Bordwell on his uh, website on cinemawell.net where he talks about um, this shaky cam and how um, it it really does make it hard to pay attention. Uh, But at the same time, he says, you know, it is hard to understand, but at the same time, if you watch the fight scene and you actually look at all the shots, everything is still there. It's just, it's, it's very... Uh, it's very quick and, and you really just are given just a, a moment to kind of capture the thing that you need to see. You see the cord, you see the, the hands grab it, you see the, the hand grab a magazine, you, you see these things happen and then your mind kind of pieces together what's going on and, and I can see that and, and I think to a, a large extent it, I, I don't have a problem with how it, how it works. I, I, I understand the action you're right. The the ge- geography of the scene is is really what you do end up losing. And in fact, there's an actually an interview with Steven Spielberg about it, where he says, "Quick cutting is very effective in some movies, like the Bourne pictures, but you sacrifice geography when you go for quick cutting, which is fine because audiences get a huge adrenaline rush from a cut every second and a half on the Bourne Ultimatum, and there's just enough geography for the audience never to be lost, especially in the last Bourne film." Which, uh, and he just goes on to talk about that and then Indiana Jones, but it's um, well that that's the point, right? I mean, I, this I, well, I think exactly. I think that is the point. Yes, you're sacrificing geography, but you're getting this huge rush. You're you're in the middle of it, and even if you don't grasp every shot, you're still understanding, you know, the nature of what's going on. Yeah, I, I you know I think that's that is. Uh, that's kind of the point. And, and when I look at Paul Greengrass, you know, his, the, the general tone of his work, this movie it, you, feels like a, a bit of a healthy bit of experimentation with quick cutting uh, that leads to, I don't know. I mean, if you are a fan of the, of, of the stylistic choice, uh, it leads to more expertise toward Ultimatum. And you can so, sort of see the, the intensity of the Bourne movies leading from Identity, w- which is more of a traditionalist espionage thriller stylistically, to, um, you know, Ultimatum, which is which is very much the, the sort of the, I don't know, 
ultimate. Oh, <laughs> I was gonna. I was toying with <laughs> postmodern action style, uh, but but the chaos action style, and I think that's uh, I, I think that's very telling. And you know, I say uh, I, I don't mean to diminish it by saying you know, oh my gosh, I get sick in the fight scenes. That that it is. I think you said it. If you if you work too hard to to diagnose a, the geography of a particular particular scene, you're going to lose it because I, mm-hmm. I I feel like you got to really be able to slow it down to actually follow it. But you shouldn't really need to, right? And right. there is enough that there is enough kind of uh, of of the pace of the the sort of metered pace uh, between the the action that I think you you still get it. I'm not sure. I don't really remember Ultimatum as well as I I probably should as recent as it is. Um, but it's, I still, I, mean, I still feel in touch. And, and definitely the shaky cam, the, the queasy cam, the unsteady cam, whatever you want to call it is amped up even more than it is in the born supremacy. Mm-hmm. This, so, so we pick up in, uh, India in this movie, uh, our, our, uh, bedraggled hero, uh, is living with his, uh, the love of his life, the awesome Marie, Mm-hmm. Uh, who's who just doesn't have enough of a part in this movie? No, but it's it's it is really interesting. It, it's it's so tragic what happens, yeah. but it is really interesting how they um, built to that relationship, which was really the the heart of the first film, and they use that in the second film as um, as the foundation for what's coming. And I think that's that's really strong. Um, actually, Paul Greengrass talked about how when Tony Gilroy first came up with the idea for the story, uh, you know, he really wanted it where it was uh, about kind of absolution for crimes that he's done in his past. And uh, which, you know, just a, a quick aside, like we said last time, this is completely almost 100% unrelated to the actual Robert Ludlum book, The Born Supremacy. By yeah, this point, there's really this, by this movie, we've gone together anymore. completely off the rails. <laughs> yeah, it's just like, now it's just Tony Gilroy's book. Yeah, you know? it is. So this is Robert Ludlum <laughs> TM. You know, <laughs> that's that's as much Robert Ludlum as is in it. Um, so, um, but he had three pillars that were the foundation for the story that they felt were the key moments to really make the story um tied together and make sense that that they kept in mind through the whole thing and the first was the death of marie at the beginning and that's the thing that you know pushes jason Bourne back into this world and and he has to now uh, figure out more about who he is the second one happens midway through and that's when he finally realizes what this memory that's plaguing him is and realizes the horror of it and then the third pillar is at the end when he goes and and you know absolves himself of his sins, and those three things I think when you when you put those together it it uh, it takes you know and I think this is why they chose to make the born supremacy as everybody had said you know we're not going to go and make this movie we're not gonna we're not gonna make a sequel to the born identity it, we just the the book didn't have the story that they wanted to tell. Until Tony Gilroy came up with this, these three pillars and and knew how to do this story, um, that's that's what it is that triggered people to go, okay, yes, that is a story that we can make. You know what's interesting about it? Once you get through past the death of Marie, which happens fairly early in the first twenty minutes, like that's that's the first pivot, mm-hmm. uh, as you said, and then the movie changes, and it's. Uh, 
there is an interesting sort of political redemption story that that uh, you know if you were hungry for more uh more Brian Cox um mm-hmm. the the thing that I think this movie does really well and, and you know I'm of a mind again I'm I look forward to confirming this next week but uh, I'm of a mind that this is my least favorite of the 3 mm-hmm. and and yet what this movie does exceptionally well is pay off it, it provide a punchline for the political story in the first book, like it, in a way that feels like it really was intentionally built this way, like these three movies were constructed to fit well together uh, by by really weighting the the the, the story itself uh, less on Jason Bourne and his search than on uh, Joan Allen uh, or Pamela Landy and uh, uh, and her search for the truth. Like you really feel like the anchor. Uh, sort of dramatic anchor of this film is weighted toward the the agency and her her discovery of Treadstone now Um, because you know Jason as little as he knows he already knows more than she does well he does and he doesn't you know it's it's what's interesting and I I really like the structure of the film how Pamela Landy is trying to figure out who killed these um, these people that were doing this trade Mm -hmm. about the Nesky files and um, she's trying to figure out the answers to that, which lead her to Jason and subsequently to the truth. And he's trying to figure out who is, you know, why are they trying to kill him? And that leads him to why is he being framed for these murders and, and leads him to the truth. And it's really interesting how these two stories come together. And I actually like that quite a bit. I do, too. I, I think they, you know, that they set Pamela Landy up. And I think as the audience, we... You know, we get the feeling, sort of, we get the impression early on that uh, it it's Pamela Landy and uh, Jason Bourne who are in uh, a, a sort of partnership uh, through the the sort of dramatic story of the of the film, and uh, uh, you know they're both going to the same place, and you can feel that sort of inevitable plod toward that same destination, um, uh, no matter what you know Ward Abbott throws up in his way or or uh, uh, you know, the awesome Carl Urban. Yeah, another person who uh, needs to be in more good movies. Mm-hmm. Man, I'm looking forward to that Judge Dredd, aren't you? Huh? Oh, uh, oh, uh, oh. Uh, so, um, anyhow, I, I think they that's one of the bits that they that they did really, really well is that it, the balance between the, the political uh, side of the film, uh, side of the story and, and the... The discovery, and I think we needed that. Like we, we sort of needed the, um, the break where Jason Bourne is still desperate, but he's learned enough where we can take a little bit of a break in the trilogy and and learn more about the agency and about what the agency is doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So, it's also really interesting, I think, seeing moments where Jason Bourne. I mean, this is you know theoretically, I guess, he, a couple years later, right? Right. Um, he's kind of created this new life for himself in India uh, with Marie and is, you know, still struggling with who he is, but is in a place where he's kind of having a more peaceful life. He gets to Berlin after, you know, the the beginning scene in India. He gets to Berlin and the first thing he does is he visits um, the other last Treadstone agent, Jarda, played by Martin, I don't know how you say his last name, Zokas. Mm-hmm. Um, who also is in uh, Lord of the Rings as uh, as Lady Galadriel's husband. Um, he visits him, and uh, 
it's it's a it's a really interesting scene it's a great fight scene first of all although i'm always like well why are they fighting is he really is this is jarda actually in on this and wants him dead i otherwise you know it's just these treadstone agents always are just trying to kill each other anytime well, okay they're in the same room with each other that's that's exactly but, it because at one point but, they actually I, say sorry go ahead uh, no, no no at one point they actually say you know uh, so we're the only two left right uh, so why are we trying to kill each other? Like it's I don't. Like, that was unresolved. I'm just like, well, he's he came to. I mean, and then the guy says, "Oh, I'm sorry. I thought you were here to kill me." Yeah. But then, and then they, he tries they, to kill him. They, <laughs> so, but but the thing about that fight is, after it's over, you see Jason Bourne in like a you know a subway bathroom, kind of cleaning all the blood off his hands and cleaning himself up, and you see him looking at himself, and this is the first time he's killed in a long time. And you can see that struggle that Jason Bourne, the the guy who is trying to enjoy his life and just get you know himself figured out, it's a real struggle to get back into that life of the spy who kills people. Mm-hmm. And it's very interesting. And you don't get that all the time in big summer action spy movies. Well, and that goes back to the to uh, what Matt Damon brings in particular, I think, to this to this character. Uh, which is that that subdued, subtle sensitivity um, that uh, you know had had he he brought the more aggressive I'm a you know I'm a big bad spy kind of sensibility would have been totally lost. But what we win here with with his portrayal that sort of what we talked about last week was that that sort of uh, everyman portrayal uh, of this character is something that's really um, that really approachable, and you can imagine feeling the shock, you know, that, that initial shock when something really you know horrific happens right right in front of your face, mm-hmm. and and in in his case, it's you know it's it's killing somebody, and and uh, you know, for me, it might be walking up the stairs. Um, <laughs> it's and that also goes into what we talked about last week um, with Bourne versus James Bond, right? And uh, Paul Greengrass actually um, talked about that a little bit and how James Bond really is more of an embodiment of this insider sort of persona where he's really in it for the secrecy. He loves the secret agent life. He kills without remorse. He enjoys killing. It's, it's kind of a game to him. He's a, he's a misogynist. You know, he's he, this guy who's all about the gadgets and just, you know, this whole thing where he's an insider and he gets everything and it's it's a great life. Bourne is much more of this outsider who's who doesn't like authority. He doesn't like killing. He he's not a misogynist. He's he's has doubt about the things he does. He is trying to figure out who he is, and all of that creates a totally different type of of spy hero. And I think it's I, I don't know if it's it's you know. Uh, a spy hero for today versus a spy hero for the the Cold War era. I don't know what it is, but there's something about Jason Bourne that really resonates. Well, I you know I mean I've been thinking about this since we last talked because we we made the you had made the comparison uh, to Die Another Day and how much you love that movie. <laughs> and you know I the. the you know, I think Bourne. What we talked about last week was that Bourne influenced, or Bourne was an influence, was a, a, a sort of what we needed in that action hero at that time, and Bond was not. So we get that. So 2006, um, but 2004, Bourne Supremacy comes out. Right mm-hmm. now, we have right. two Bourne movies 
uh, that people you know generally really like and can and can uh, uh, kind of find a, a, a parallel to in their own lives. And then 2006, we get Casino Royale with Daniel Craig, a whole new bond for a whole new generation. How much do you think uh, Matt Damon's Jason Bourne actually um, influenced the direction of Casino Royale and Quantum of Solace? You know, I think it influenced it quite a bit. I mean, I am very uninformed as far as the novels. I, I've never read Casino Royale. I really can't compare that at all. Um, but the movie itself, aside from uh, the obvious, you know, shaky cam and the the mo- more modern stunt and action yeah, style I mean, of filmmaking. Think about that opening scene of, of Casino Royale, the running, yeah. uh, you know, the, the parkour scene was shaky cam all the way exactly um but aside from that james bond has become um more of a he's he's not as misogynistic i mean there's some of that but there's there's there seems to be more respect for the the female characters in the film particularly in the those two casino royale and quantum of solace um because of that relationship that that he ended up having with vesper and she became a much more important figure in his life, and he fell in love with her and, and wanted to, you know, quit the business and run away. And it, they, I think they, they pulled a lot from what Doug Lyman and Paul Greengrass and Frank Marshall and uh, Tony, the, uh, Pat Crowley, and, and yeah. the team had done with these movies in making a film that was more in touch with the humanity of the character. I, and even though they still play to those James Bond conventions, there's a lot more uh, connection to him. I, I have a theory uh, that I just, uh, I've really been working on, uh, you know, kind of presenting over the last 35 seconds. And so it's obviously going to be really well thought out. Uh, it, what what it, what I find so interesting, one of the reasons I think that we connect so well with Jason Bourne is that it, we are involved in the education of Jason Bourne, right? That that we're very much on the same level as he is because he is going through this lesson of, of discovery and education in, of his own life, and we can relate to that, right? I mean, yeah. Do you agree? So look what they do with, with Daniel Craig. It, they take this bond and they make it a prequel. For all intents and purposes, whether you make it a, a literal prequel or a, uh, a, a sort of spiritual character prequel, they're mm-hmm. taking taking Daniel Craig and putting him in James Bond before he was uh, the James Bond that we know of <laughs> Die Another Day, before he had his officially had his license to kill, while he was still learning how to be a spy, and he right. is stumbling through this world, and we, uh, as such, are learning from him. And I think that is is one of the pieces that makes this uh, makes this sort of character so um, amenable to us as an audience. When you look at the, you know, I, I mean, this is as a, a storytelling device. You look at the characters that that we absolutely fall in love with from James Bond, Jason Bourne to Harry Potter. I mean, when you are, you know, when you are put in a place of learning and evolving with these characters, it becomes someone that you can really build a connection with. Definitely. And I think they did that. I, I, I think that's, you know, maybe an unintentional uh, influence uh, that these Bourne movies had on, on James Bond that we have today. It could be. It could have. Um, it, it it could have been something that they really saw and was and and really realized that 
they could use that sort of a reboot that had that learning curve in it, which which does help you connect to the character quite a bit. Mm-hmm. So, so talk about uh, what's your impression of Brian Cox's character, uh, Ward Abbott. Well, I, you know, I like it. It's it's something that I had to think about um, um, when I watched it again. I'm like, okay, so in the first film, he's kind of he comes across as the good guy CIA agent who has to clean up the mess that the corrupt CIA agent has made with this whole Treadstone operation. Mm-hmm. Although then you start realizing, okay, he, so he's not really the good guy CIA agent. He's the also corrupt CIA agent. And that's, you know, so it basically works. It, you know, he's, it was a little convoluted and a little um, mysterious, but, you know, I guess the long and the short of it is he and Conklin basically gave a bunch of CIA money to these Russians, uh, Yuri, and to, to basically buy these uh, privatized oil fields, right? right. Something, something obscure like that. And uh, Nesky was standing in their way as a politician who was trying to do something good and do something for the people. So they had the Treadstone Project um, secretly, because Nikki didn't know about this. They had this um, Jason Bourne assassinate Nesky. And, uh, you know, it's it's kind of the most convoluted element of the story, I think. It, it's just like, okay, I can see what you're trying to do. It's, it's almost the uh, MacGuffin. You know, I almost just don't even need to know about all that because it's not really helping me move the story forward are there any elements of that character that that you do need to know about like for example do you need to do you need to have that convoluted setup in order to see uh, in order to see him kill danny well is that an important element that's the thing that bugs me most about this film i never really understand why danny all of a sudden seems like he's kind of siding with Ward over Pamela Landy. There's nothing, because even when he goes down and shows Ward the, um, the evidence that he's discovered, which, you know, leads to his um, death um, by the hands of Ward, it doesn't, it's like, there's nothing in that said, oh, well, you know, I can see that you're the clear-headed one and Pamela's going off on a wild goose chase, so I want, I wanted to tell you. There's nothing really that that came through uh, from uh, Danny about any reason why he chose to tell Ward as opposed to Pamela, who seems to be more of his boss. So that whole thing just seems kind of like a forced way to just let us know, oh, Ward is actually a bad guy and he's in on this whole thing. I, I don't know. I, I found that the weakest part of this whole story. Yeah, I I, I think my challenge uh, starts, maybe it starts a little bit uh, uh, before that, which is I wasn't sure how to characterize the relationship between Ward and Pamela uh, in terms of their kind of professional hierarchy, yeah. where in that first kind of board, uh, board meeting, uh, you know, about a half hour into the film, we get all the agents in Pamela Landy's presentation, and their presumed boss says, "Oh, you two, play nice on the playground. Uh, you, I want you all to go to Berlin." Right. 
and and sends them both. Uh, I you know because the first movie was set up that Brian Cox was the boss. He was the guy going to you know doing the congressional meetings. He was the guy. He was the guy. Mm-hmm. And now we're we're thrown into the story at a point at which we're just support, supposed to adjust to seeing that that Ward Abbott is now not just a guy. He is, um, you know, he's staff. He's staff in a in a very sort of compromised position. Uh, and now he's in this role of sort of protection or protecting his own sort of. Which skin. I suppose could have come to pass because of his relationship in the Treadstone right. debacle where maybe through his involvement there, even though he's the one who kind of got it cleaned up, maybe yeah. saved his job, but barely or something. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. So yeah, you know, I'm, I'm with you and that's, that's sort of the unfortunate part of the film because I generally, uh, you know, Brian Cox is one of those guys. I just like watching his face. Uh, you know, such I don't ex- care how bad the scenes are uh, or how confusing or, <laughs> Uh, yeah. nonsensical the story may be watching brian cox and joan allen yeah together they're just always great moments they're so good they are just so so talented mm-hmm. uh that that they they sort of pull that off yeah uh okay uh who else is of note for you in this film well julia styles again returns as nikki which is great um a little you know, more confident it, she's got a little more meat to her role this time, which will, you know, lead into the next film. I, I think she's always great. I love seeing her as Nikki in this film. Definitely and, got a cuter uh, haircut. Yeah, I think she does a, a wonderful job. Much cuter and, haircut. Yes, she does have a cute haircut in this one. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the strangest thing, you know, I mentioned Walton Goggins appearing as one of the Treadstone, like, office guys in the last film, which is kind of a strange bit part. It, there's there's really nothing to it. It's just a guy in the office, and in this film, Michelle Monaghan has a bit part in the in Pamela Landy's office. And I'm like, why why are these people? I mean, they must really just want to be a part of a Bourne movie in order to uh, just you know <laughs> you know get into <laughs> get into doing something fun. Like I really was kind of confused, and I guess she hadn't done a lot of of bigger films yet, but she'd fit in some stuff. Uh, you know, I guess Kiss Kiss Bang Bang came out um, the following year after this and, and uh, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, but uh, but still, I'm just like, I, I don't know. It just seems strange to see her in such a bit part. Yeah, that's funny. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Oh, and then the big person that I was going to talk about, um, you know, bringing him up in the, in the, um, beginning of the episode but the stunt coordinator on this film dan bradley he came on board um I, you know i i he wasn't on the first movie but he came on board with this one with uh paul greengrass and he's uh continued through the rest of the born series with uh paul greengrass on board ultimatum and then tony gilroy on the upcoming born legacy uh, and he's just you know a master stuntman who's um, really just does some amazing stuff and you know we didn't even say but a, a lot of the stunts are performed by the actors themselves and so they, they really help kind of train these guys like matt damon to actually do some of his own stunts in fact the scene when matt damon when jason Bourne is um is held up at the airport by the uh, in naples by this by the security and you've got the the uh, the guy from the U.S. Embassy who comes over to kind of question him and and uh, in his detainment. Remember that scene? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
and Jason kind of plays it cool. And then once Jason realizes that the CIA is on the phone with him, he he decks the guy and and you know downloads his phone and all that and escapes. Matt Damon in the in that uh, shot, Matt Damon actually swings his fist and he actually decked the guy. The guy collapsed and actually was knocked out. <laughs> <laughs> I did and, not know that. I know. And the first thing the guy says when he gets up, he looks at Paul Greengrass and goes, "Oh, tell me you got that." <laughs> That's one of those stories you want to you want to believe that's the cut they use. Exactly. <laughs> is that are we dispelling that? Is that a myth no, or we're I, just no, going to say that's true. the one they use? Yeah, I I'm sure it was the one they use. I it's one of those things where I doubt they had to go back and and get another shot cuz it probably just looked so good. That's too great. Yeah. That's yeah. really great. <laughs> uh it, so the stunts were fantastic and we should talk then about a little bit about what uh, uh Richard Pearson and Christopher Rouse who edited the film um what they um uh you know what they uh, bring to the film uh, in in terms of their kind of editing prowess these guys if you look at their uh you know their cv um they're all over just these kinds of films particularly richard pearson with quantum of solace and of course uh, he, iron man 2 and puppets from space <laughs> <laughs> well okay scary movie 2 uh, no, but, but seriously, yeah, these two guys um, really brought a lot to the table as far as the way that they they styled the cutting of the film. Aside from the cinematography that Oliver Wood did, and right. the way that um, the way that Paul Greengrass directed it with this very kind of shaky, handheld, in-your-face sort of style, Richard Pearson and Christopher Rouse really um, helped um, enhance that style. And create this world where that did have such fast cutting, but it all made sense and it told a story in a way where we didn't have to have all the bits and pieces in between. You know, we got just enough to be able to tell uh, what everything was. And it's it was a very, um, very well edited film. I mean, in the world of the shaky cam style, I think they they did a fantastic job. Well, and that's that I think is the magic of the film in particular, which is this uh, that that, you know, the art happens in the middle. And and it happens in not only in the in the sort of space between the shots, but it happens between you know the, the director and cinematographer on set and the editors uh, who are who are you know taking this material, which which at you know throughout the last decade provides a great challenge to to editors everywhere. How do we how do we take shaky cam? How do we take the the quick cutting? And how do we make it a, into a story that that still makes sense and doesn't end up just being domino? Um, and, uh, and I, I, you know, I think that's, that's a real gift. Yeah. Yeah, it, it absolutely is. And, uh, and on top of that tying in, you know, John Powell does the music for all three Bourne films and really, you know, came up with a great theme for Jason Bourne. Uh, actually a couple just really solid themes that have, have kind of wound their way through all three films and have really helped tie it all together in a very cohesive way. Uh, I think the music, there's definitely some tracks that are just very, just straightforward action tracks that are just meant to kind of get you from point A to point B, but they still have that energy and really move, especially when you tie it in with the way that the editing, editing is and the cameras, cameras uh, moving and uh, and then the sound. I mean, the sound mixing on all of these um, really is just is just 
stellar. And I, I think that you also have to give props to the the sound team. Who was the sound team? Tell me who the sound team was. I don't have it right here. Where's the sound team? I haven't even looked at it. Now who's the sound team? The sound... Oh, for crying out loud, who's the sound team? <laughs> I've lost the sound team. Where are they? Well, the there's, sound a, there's a... Holy crap, look at the sound department. There's like 700 people. I know, it's a it's a beefy sound department, but it looks like Scott Millen and Bob Beamer are the sound mixers on the film. So, um, So I guess they're the two that we'll give props to. On behalf of those two gentlemen... Thank you for your work on this movie. It's fantastic. It's this goes back to what we were looking at yesterday. What we were talking about yesterday, and that the the Matthias Stork uh, video essay, uh, where you know you get to look. If you haven't looked at that yet, go back and look at it. it it's in the link is in last week's show notes, where you get to hear. You know he separates um, Quantum of Solace uh, car chase uh, from the video with the sound. You get to hear the car chase, and it's it's. Uh, I I think that's. That's the example of why this movie works, uh, pushing the boundaries of the shaky cam. Uh, it, it works because of the sound. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, um, the they uh, were nominated for some sound awards for this film. And uh, I think that they probably deserve not an Oscar, but they did get um, some sound awards from the um, the ever important Cinema Audio Society. Yes. Now, which is more important for a sound uh, a mixer than, say, the Audubon Society? <laughs> That's exactly that would be that would be a right. context shock. <laughs> <laughs> hey, good sound! We like trees. As long as you have some <laughs> bird sounds in, it's great. <laughs> oh, that's good. Uh, so, uh, the. Uh, <laughs> Uh, can we, we we should talk just a, since we talked about Ebert last week when or when he says that the movie was unnecessary, mm. uh, but not unskilled. Uh, right. That on identity born supremacy, he says this movie skillfully, uh, so it is still skilled. Okay, good. Delivers a series of fights, stalkings, plottings, and chases, punctuated by a little brooding, <laughs> which which is true. I I think that is. I think that's true. Uh, definitely brooding, there, yes. there is definitely brooding. Uh, the, the, uh, let's see. Thrillers don't exist in a plausible universe. They consist of pre preposterous situations survived by skill, courage, craft, and luck that Matt Damon is able to bring some poignancy to Jason Bourne makes the process more interesting because we can, because we care more about the character that the director, Paul Greengrass treats the material with gravity and uses good actors in well-written supporting roles, elevates the movie above its genre, but not quite out of it hmm. that's another one of those things i don't understand like it's a it seems like a really powerful closing line until you realize it doesn't make any sense yeah, or right, or maybe it makes great sense and i don't the genre. It, it, I, I exactly know. it makes a lot of sense but i don't care yeah um uh, so uh, i i you know as the the uh, uh doyen of reviews uh i i think uh you know i think he's got a, a great point i think he talks about what we uh what we talked about earlier that there's gravity to the character and gravity to the film and it, and it makes the film more interesting to watch this movie did did pretty well right it did it uh, domestically it did about 176 million internationally 112 million uh so worldwide about 288 0.5 million. So it definitely uh, did well for itself with a production budget of 85 million and a prints and advertising budget of 45 million. 
So, uh, yeah, they they definitely made some money on this film. And, uh, yeah, they're probably going to keep making money on these films. So I feel like you were going to interrupt me when I said that this was my least favorite of the three. Was that true? What's your what's your take on this? Maybe we should talk about this next week, but I'm, I'm I think, curious I think what we should talk about this next week. Because um, I, I should definitely see Ultimatum again. But at this point, see, I feel like the Bourne Identity may be my favorite, my 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 least favorite of these two so far. <gasps> like I, I feel like I like the Bourne Supremacy, but I, I want to confirm that next week when I watch Bourne Ultimatum. Um because I really like the way that the second and third films tie together. Yeah. Um, so I think just if because I recall, of that, I, I may like the I, third one best than the second than the first. I, so I, I think I think this may be bold, but I think Ultimatum is my Jedi. Well, let's wait until next week. <laughs> <sighs> All right. All right. Uh, what else do we have to say about this one? Are we? Are we? Do you have the, other notes? Um, Paul Greengrass had yeah. something um, extremely nice to say about Matt Damon, but also actors and and acting in general. And I thought this was really interesting. Um, let me just. Um, I, I didn't really write it down word for word, so it's not an exact quote, but it's close. Um, good films are generally good because of the group. On any film set at any given moment, there are problems to be solved, and generally people on set see their own problems. A sound man will see the problems of the sound. Maybe there's an airplane. A cameraman will see his own problems. The designer designer will want to see the whole set. The electricians will be worrying about where to set the lights. The producer will be worried about what the director is doing. The director will be worried about the million things you worry about. And all the time, everybody is looking for their problems to be solved individually. But when you look at an actor, particularly the leading actor in a film, the thing I'm always very conscious of is the actor is the one person on a film set who can solve everybody's problems in one instant. By looking at just the right moment, he or she can open the shot up and make it work by making the light fall just the right way. By speaking at just the right level, can solve the sound man's problems. By opening the body, can open the setup. It's a very special responsibility, and Matt, as an actor, has the ability to do it time and time and time again. That's the mark of a great actor. That ability to solve problems instinctively. That ability to do what needs to be done with impeccable timing and a great sense of understatement and yet presence. Oh, that's really nice. You you want someone to say that about you. Yeah, you you definitely do. And I think it's a great thing to say about Matt Damon, but it's also really a very insightful thing to, to notice about what an actor is really bringing to the table. Aside from just, you know, a performance that you can believe in, but, and I don't think people fully always catch this when they're watching a movie because you're watching a performance, but, and we talked about it a little bit actually in Fight Club, the way that in the basement, how Brad Pitt knew just the right moment to turn so the light hit his face the way that it was supposed to. And aside from actually giving the performance, actors are always trying to hit their marks and trying to trying to say something at the exact right moment and it's it's there's so much more complicated stuff going on than just actually living as that character in that moment i'm really glad you you brought that up uh i think it may be something that that uh, maybe chad had mentioned in the in uh, the show we did um a while ago too, which yeah. is this idea that that it's it's not just about performance. It, there is technical craft that goes specifically into understanding the process of of being an actor on a film. Yeah. And that that um, 
it, not that it's more or less strenuous than anything else, but it requires a whole different sort of uh, level of presence on set. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I think you're right. That is a, a that's a a great awareness of of Greengrass to to um, to at least recognize that he's probably somebody that actors really really like to work with, as evidenced by not only Supremacy and Ultimatum, but you know what? Let's go ahead. We're, we don't have another Born movie on deck, so Greengrass and and Matt Damon, let's go do the Green Zone. You know, right? Exactly. Let's do Born Again. Uh, <laughs> and 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 so uh, you know, it seems like they've. Uh, they have a, a solid rapport. Yeah, I, I you, definitely you can think see so. that. I think you can see that on on screen. Um, yeah, it's interesting. From here, as much as you know, it seemed that Doug Liman and Matt Damon kind of had this buddy buddy relationship. Let's do this, um, yeah. and it's let's not worry about the studio screwing us over. Sort of mentality on the first one. Um, Doug Liman has gone on to direct a number of other action films in the Hollywood system, yet he has has yet to work with Matt Damon again. Yes. Yes. So not not that they have a bad relationship, but it's just interesting the connection that Matt Damon seems to have had now with Paul Greengrass. It seems to be a little stronger. You know, it'll be interesting. I I got a little sidetracked. I started clicking around. And mm-hmm. uh, uh Paul Greengrass next film uh is uh Captain Phillips. Chronicle of Captain Richard Phillips and his cruise encounter with Somali pirates with Tom Hanks. Oh, wow. That's exciting. Written by uh, Billy Ray. Tom Hanks, Catherine Keener, and Max Martini. Uh, That looks like that's going to be, that's going to be a good, a good film. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. I'm excited about that one. Billy Ray uh, wrote one of the, uh, a movie that I have constant uh, contentious conversations with myself. Uh, in my head, uh, which was Suspect Zero. I don't think I saw that. Really? Suspect oh, no, no, no. This was uh, Aaron Eckhart and Ben Kingsley. Uh, it was a, it was terrific. Uh, and not. <laughs> all at all at once. Like, it's one of those movies that is is a series of awesome moments punctuated or, like, strewn together with, like, uh, just, you know, Ah, see, it's I. I was going for some sort of a fabric that uh, that is very light and loose, linen, maybe a linen. Awesome and weighty moments strung together by linen. Yeah, I've I've derailed. Uh, but that was a great movie. The other one that he wrote that I actually quite liked was Shattered Glass. That's one that I I teach pretty regularly, which was the story of Stephen Glass and his um, uh, fabulous fabulism um, as a journalist. Uh, which was a great movie. It was definitely better than Hearts War or yeah, Volcano. Yeah, yeah. But then you know, Flight Plan, uh, State of Play, Hunger Games. I, did, I didn't like Flight Plan, but Breach I thought was uh, a fantastic. Yeah, film. yeah, yeah. I you know I liked State of Play. Um, I liked State of Play a lot. Um, and you know I know Hunger Games is one of your favorites. I, I you know I really liked State of Play, and then I walked out of the theater and I completely forgot everything that happened in the film. <laughs> <laughs> It was one of those movies. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, uh this was a this was a good team and a good uh a good film uh, uh Born Supremacy. It's a good part 2. And and I'm I'm really fighting uh not uh to, even though we're doing this, you know, leading up to uh the Born Legacy. 
uh, I'm really having a hard time breaking it out of the trilogy that exists in my head. Well, it is a trilogy. I mean, we definitely have a Bourne trilogy. It's about Jason Bourne, right? It it definitely feels like it has a beginning, middle, and end. The Bourne Legacy, it could turn into a another trilogy. It could just be a one-off. It it could turn into a whole series of like endless James Bond type of spin-offs of this uh Treadstone Blackbriar type of government conspiratorial society. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very interesting to see where it's going to go, um, and I'm and I'm excited. But you're right; it definitely is going to be like a trilogy plus one is what we're really going to kind of right. be at once uh, the Born Legacy comes out. It, it will be um, it'll be interesting to see if Jeremy Renner can make it stick. It will be. I've talked to some people about him, and I I like Jeremy Renner. Um, he hasn't really had a lot of opportunity to prove himself as a leading man other than Hurt Locker. And, uh, cause I think most everything else he's done, uh, before supporting. and after has always been supporting. Yeah. yeah so, but, but again, so, he's, he's, his, the Hurt Locker was fantastic. It was. And I think, you know, like you said, um, last week about, um, Matt Damon, he brings that kind of vanilla blandness to the role which it does kind of require for this kind of you know anonymous spy sort of character and i think that uh, that um, jeremy renner definitely brings that as well that'll be interesting to see so next week we're doing uh we're doing the born ultimatum leading up to uh uh, our uh, the born legacy and we'll do we'll plan on another late night movie chat for that one you Betcha. That'll that'll be a fun one to that'll chat about with uh, with everybody. I'm very excited about that one. Yeah. All right, my friend. Anything else we need to, to uh, talk about? Any other house cleaning? Housekeeping? Um, I, I don't think so. I think we've uh, we think we've kind of covered all of it. I, you know, um, it was great seeing Chris Cooper pop up in this one again in his little uncredited role as Conklin. Yes. In some flashbacks, but um, yeah, I, I don't have anything else to say about the movie. I think. Uh, solid effort here and uh, can't wait to talk about the next one all right looking forward to it i'll catch you next week all righty i've been podcasting since 2006 in that time i've tried countless hosting platforms but in august 2022 we switched to transistor to power all of our shows here at true story fm and it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content, and we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, Go to thenextreel.com slash transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today.